Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today it's my great pleasure to talk to Tim Flannery. Tim Flannery is a scientist, an explorer, a conservationist and a leading writer on climate change. His books include the award-winning international bestseller, The Weathermakers, Here on Earth and Atmosphere of Hope. Tim Flannery was 2007 Australian of the Year and he is currently the Chief Counsel of the Climate Council. Tim Flannery, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm talking to Tim today about his new book, The Climate Cure, Solving the Climate Emergency in the Era of COVID-19. Tim, I want to begin with one of your opening statements. It goes like this. During 20 years of urging action to address climate change, I have always believed that a calm, non-emotional approach is most likely to succeed. But as I've watched governments ignore the experts and the long predicted disasters such as Australia's megafires devastate the land, my view has changed. Tim, what can we expect to hear from you in the public debate around climate change? What's really changed for me is the the fact that now for 20 years we've been laying out the facts, they've been really indisputable, um, and yet we have no action to address those facts. The obvious things we need to do just aren't being done. So we need a different approach. And I think it's one that's a lot more proactive. Uh, I do think you have to do everything from become involved in politics through to do as much as you can through industry and any, any lever you've got really, use that lever because we are being left behind at the moment by the speed of this, uh, this unfolding catastrophe. You also say this declaration is a last call for rational action to protect ourselves and our children from catastrophe. Fail now and we will fail forever. So now you're using words like catastrophe, emergency and minimising the lethality to describe what's confronting us. These terms imply that we're at a tipping point, even at a point of no return. Are we at that point? Look, we're definitely at a fork in the road um, and the tipping points lay ahead if we, if we take the wrong road. That's for sure. Um, we, we know the science is telling us that, you know, once we hit one and a half degrees of warming, which will happen sometime in the next decade, uh, we'll start really nudging up against those tipping points and we can expect to see them start to tip. So this is the last moment, last possible moment really for action to cut emissions hard and fast the scientists tell us exactly what we need to do. We've got to cut, you know, 8% or a year or more of our emissions every year for the next decade in order to take the right fork on the road. But we're not seeing the Australian government um, even contemplating that. You seem to actually place the fight for climate change on some kind of war footing when you identify three battlegrounds or three theatres of war. Can you outline those three theatres of war? Well, look, those, those theatres of war are really drawn from a sort of a medical analogy. You know, when you're facing a pandemic or a serious disease, you've got to do three things. The first is to stop the transmission. If the transmission keeps growing, you'll lose the war. The second is you've got to have enough capacity to deal with all of the casualties because we're already deep into this war and we've got a lot of casualties. 
In climate terms, they range from the Great Barrier Reef, which is you know, really suffering now, through to the people that die in heat waves or bushfires or whatever else. Don't have enough emergency capacity. And thirdly, you've got to have, or well, you've got to be working towards something like a permanent cure, a vaccine. And for climate, that really means um, getting some of the CO2 out of the air. So we have to look at a whole lot of possibilities, whether it's replanting forest at a large scale, using kelp in the oceans to draw down CO2, using rocks or even some geoengineering potential to start creating that, that safe space. Because at the moment, the cards are stacked against us. As I said, there's enough CO2 in the atmosphere to push us towards at to one and a half degrees over the next decade. We have to start clawing that back. There's another striking change in the use of language. And this is in particular reference to the fossil fuel industry. And you actually term it as the fossil fuels industry's war on climate action. And you use the term parasite to describe the fossil fuel industry. Why do you use that term? First of all, I just want to say that the fossil fuel industry has been carrying on a war against climate action since the 1980s, when ExxonMobil did the science, knew where we'd be by 2020, but then based their entire strategy upon denying the reality of climate change and delaying regulatory uh, change that would uh, lower their profits and address climate change. So that's pretty clear. The facts and figures are out there to support that. They act like a parasite because they want us to imagine either they're not part of the problem or they're not really there at all. And they like to remain invisible when it comes to, to climate change. They'll, they'll work through their back channels to try to influence the discussion, but they don't like the spotlight being on them. Just like parasites in our body, uh, they like to remain hidden and, and sap our strength as they go along without being recognised. Well, the fossil fuel industry has been a bit the same. You actually talk about cutting off fossil fuel support network. And I think you discussed that in terms of the, the divestment movement. That sounds quite drastic. What do you mean by that? Well, what's been happening over the last decade or so is that people have realised that the money they have invested in shares and so forth is in fact propping up the fossil fuel industry. And there's been a huge move um, started by Bill McKibben, 350.org and others to make sure that that doesn't occur, that they don't invest in companies that are are using or producing fossil fuels. And that's become huge. It, it, it's now gone through to insurers, uh, to companies that work with, with fossil fuel industries, and particularly in the case of coal, I think that the, the coal industry has really now lost its social license to operate. And, and that's reflected in the, in the financing of that, that industry. I want to now move on to a few of the myths that have been perpetrated by the fossil fuel industry and governments around the world for that matter. So I wonder if you can help me bust a few of those. Some of them are pretty obvious. 100% renewable energy is impossible. Well, that's just so wrong. I mean, we can, you know, the modelling has been done even for Australia and the main southeastern grid in Australia that shows that we could be at 100% renewable in three years if we wanted to. Um, you know, this, the, the people know how to do this. It's simply what we have to do is close down those old coal-fired power plants and replace them with new clean energy and with batteries and storage. We know we can do it. The, the engineers know it can be done. So, so that myth is well and truly busted. Baseload electricity supply can't be provided by renewables. Well, this whole idea of baseload is a sort of a Soviet era concept, really. And it relates to the bad old days when you had a massive coal-fired power plant or nuclear plant that sent out electricity to industries that were using 
energy very wastefully at large volumes and couldn't be turned on or off. That, that circumstance no longer exists. What we now want is clean electricity reliably uh, when we needed it and at the volumes we need. And that doesn't involve baseload. That is a balanced grid with all of the modern sophisticated means of making sure that electricity is stored for however long is required here or there after being generated and then can be made available to households. And in this new grid, people are, are, are what's called prosumers. So you're both a producer and a consumer. And, uh, you know, Australia's really leading the world with this. We have more rooftop solar than almost anywhere else on the planet. And in South Australia, for example, the largest power plant, if you want to think about it that way, is rooftop solar. And so those people who own some panels on their roof, they're both selling electricity into the grid and buying it when they need it. And so you need a different sort of grid. It's not the sort of thing Baseload can deal with. Baseload went out with Joe Stalin, I reckon. It's kind of like a, an antique uh, phrase that, that people resort to without really understanding what it means. South Australia's big battery is like a big banana tourist attraction. Well, that's what the energy minister said about it at the time and others in parliament, um, that it was just a tourist attraction. It's turned out to be incredibly profitable. It's so profitable, it paid itself back within, I think, months. And now there's, I think, number two and number three big battery coming along. And Queensland's developing a big battery and Western Australia's developing one. And it clearly is just one of those innovations that is, is, is essential in a modern grid. Natural gas is a transition fuel to a cleaner future. Yeah, well, you know, when you look at the states that have, are furthest along with that transition, so South Australia is a good example of that, where they've got rid of their coal, their largest generation is, um, is renewable energy. In South Australia, if you take a decade-long view, the amount of gas that they're using is also going down. So yes, we need some gas in the system, as we do in South Australia, but it's not going to be an expanding supply. It's going to be a contracting supply of gas as batteries and renewables and so forth take up the slack. So it's not a transition fuel in the sense it's going to be a growing industry. It might be a very temporary stepping stone so that some of the existing infrastructure will stay there a bit longer than a coal-fired plants. But all the fossil fuels are heading the same way. They're all going out the door. The next one's fairly contentious. All mining is bad. And that is, again, incorrect. Um, Mining, you know, a lot of people dislike the concept of mining because it does disrupt local ecosystems and landscapes inevitably, as, as it's done. But some mining is absolutely necessary. Um, we wouldn't be able to develop the clean energy transition if it wasn't for the minerals that came from mines such as lithium mines, copper mines, and so forth. So mining will be with us for a long time. The sort of mining we have to really stop very, very soon, though, is the mining of fossil fuels. So that's drilling for gas, drilling for oil, and, and coal mining. Those are the kinds of mines that now have to stop. Abandoning coal and other fossil fuels will cost jobs. Well, so pe people say, some people say, but if you look around the world at what's happening now, you realise how absolutely untrue that is. First of all, a lot of jobs are created in clean energy when you move away from fossil fuel. But secondly, governments that do this properly are managing to make the transition from a heavily fossil fuel dependent economy to a very clean economy without the loss of a single job in any coal mining areas. And a great example of that is Germany, which is now in the middle of that transition and they have pledged and they've got the plan to do it, not to lose a single job in those coal mining areas because you don't want to add disadvantage to job loss in places like the, 
those regions which have been heavily dependent on coal mining. Australia could do that as well, very, very easily. But of course, it suits many in government to tell people that without coal, they've got nothing and they're helpless because then they're captive. They're politically captive to their masters who defend coal. And Germany, of course, is historically been a centre of coal mining and coal burning. So it seems to me that if they can do it, why can't we? Well, absolutely. That was the Ruhr Valley. Just think about it. You know, it was steel, everything. It was the place where coal really rose to its zenith, but now no longer. And Australia could be going down exactly the same path with enlightened government policy. Australia has met and exceeded its emissions targets. Well, you know, there's statisticians and statisticians and damn liars, as they say. Um, You know, it's... Oh, God, I just... I don't know quite what to say about that sort of stuff. You know, if you set your targets low enough and you allow enough slack in the system so you don't measure everything, you can say Australia may have met its targets. But, but what Australia is not doing is pulling its weight globally in terms of this transition. In fact, we're holding the world back. The spoiling role that Australia plays at international negotiations, our defence of coal until recently and now our defence of gas is just slowing down that transition. I've just got a couple more prosaic myths to to bust. I hope you can help me with those. Tradies will lose their utes. Well, again, just how, what a load of rubbish. I mean, you know, Tesla is already producing or or has got the the prototype of their their electric utility, which is going to be bigger and better than anything that's on the roads today. Um, You know, electric vehicles are going to be the future and they'll be trucks, they'll be There'll be utilities, there'll be small uh, vehicles to get around. Um, but that's that, the transition is now well entrenched globally. I mean, some companies such as VW, for example, have pledged to stop producing um, liquid fuel vehicles, so conventional vehicles, by 2026, right? That's just a little over five years away. So electric vehicles are on the way. There's nothing we can do to stop them. Um, I would say embrace them because they're going to be a lot safer um, and more reliable and cheaper to run. It seems like Australians will be driving around in the equivalent to the horse and cart if we're not careful. Yeah, that's right. We're already a dumping ground for really inefficient um, petrol-driven vehicles and it costs the nation a fortune for imported oil. Um, it costs us in terms of health costs with the, with the pollution that... that um, those vehicles produce the air pollution, those vehicles produce. And, you know, it costs everyone a, a bloody fortune to run them. It doesn't have to be that way. One final one. I'll have to give up steak. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a bit of a meat eater myself, I must say. I probably eat less than I did in the past. And um, you know, when, when you look around, sure, steak, um, cattle uh, are, a, are a source of methane. But there are some really interesting approaches on the horizon that could limit that. So the use of a red seaweed, for example, called asparagopsis, a gram or two a day in the average cow's feed reduces methane massively. Some people claim on the order of 99%. So we'll see where all of that goes. But to me, the world has always had a lot of large herbivores in it. We've probably got too many today because of feedlotting and that sort of thing. But large herbivores have always been part of our our ecosystems. And... um, I think there'll be a role for meat eating, you know, if you put aside the other the societal views of things um, for some time to come. So I don't think you need to give up your steak. I think probably eat a bit less of it is a good thing, good thing for the planet and probably a good thing for you as well. But um, let's see how people adapt in, in time to come. Well, I think we've effectively busted all of those myths. Thanks, Tim. Great. Thank you. 
my final question on that subject is why is the bleeding obvious so hard to get across? People who live by lying become very good liars. And could I just put to you one of the worst lies, the one that really upset me, is this idea that Australia, because it's only 1.4% of the problem in terms of emissions, somehow we can't do anything. The Prime Minister earlier this year said, oh, no, we're such a tiny bit. No matter what we do, it wouldn't make any difference. I wanted to say to him, do you know, during the Second World War, Australian troops were about 1.4% of the total Allied effort. So if the Prime Minister at the time had said, it doesn't really matter what we do, us Australian troops, we're only 1.4% of the effort, we're, we're meaningless anyway, why bother? They would have been accused of treason. Well, I think Prime Ministers today who ignore the reality that Australia is a major producer per capita, one of the largest producers in the world, really uh, need to have a good look at themselves and to see this crisis for what it is, which is a genuine emergency that needs action and bravery and leadership, just as our nation displayed in the Second World War. We've talked a lot about the problems around climate change, but now I want to talk about the solutions and the climate cure, as you call it. I want to take another quote from your book. The real enemy is the fossil fuel industry, which is responsible for 75% of all greenhouse gases that are emitted globally. Clearly, we cannot avert a climate change disaster without rapidly ending the use of fossil fuels. Call me naive, but it seems to me that ending our dependence on fossil fuels gets us as a planet a long way to solving the problem. Am I being too naive? No, that is absolutely it. 75% of the problem is fossil fuels. We now uh, don't need to use a lot of those fossil fuels. We could transition from the use of coal, for example, in the electricity mix very, very quickly, as we've discussed. We could transition to electric vehicles reasonably quickly, so within a decade, not just a few years, but we could start doing that and preparing ourselves for that. And we could be developing a hydrogen economy so that heavy industry that has a need for uh, energy sources such as natural gas would also be able to be supplied sustainably through clean energy sources. So all of that's within reach. We've just got to start moving on it. And once we start doing that, we will start winning this battle uh, for, our, for our survival. It really is that simple. Yeah, it really is now that simple. Were I speaking a decade ago, it would have been a different story because back then clean energy was still very expensive relative to dirty energy. But today it's the cheapest form of energy on the planet. So what's propping up the fossil fuel industry is subsidies and special deals from governments that, that are keeping these things going. So um, once we get rid of that, we'll be well on our way to solving the problem. Another area covering the book is this idea of preparing for the future, preparing for change. You say that so much damage has already been done to the climate system that a cascade of severe consequences is now inevitable. We must prepare for them by optimising our adaptation to the changes that are coming. How can we prepare for those changes? Well, this really is all about the emergency room approach, you know, because either those casualties are already with us or we can see them on the horizon. So among the casualties that are already with us are the, are the people and uh, ecosystems that suffer from megafires. You know, the, the, the fires last summer, uh, less than 12 months ago now, burnt an area 10 times larger than had ever been burnt in forested Australia in times past. And we saw a catastrophic outcome. So we need to prepare people in terms of everything from smoke inhalation to better defence of their houses uh, against fire, through to preventative measures to stop those fires um, from burning such massive areas as they have in the past. A whole lot of things need to be done there. 
heat waves are another. You know, we, we know that heat waves kill hundreds of people and we, see, we know we're going to see more, bigger, longer heat waves in future. We need to make sure we've got the capacity to deal with the, with the casualties in our hospitals. Uh, rising oceans, I mean, we can all see it. I, I don't think there's a part of the Australian coast where you can't see some evidence for coastal erosion. We need to start planning very carefully how we deal with that because the costs will be enormous. They'll be potentially economy wrecking unless we get this right. Because uh, you know, in New South Wales alone, 68,000 houses are at risk of being lost you know, through, through to the end of this century if things continue as they are. Other states have similar liabilities. So again, we need proper government planning. Uh, I argue that we need to do a bit like what New Zealand did. You know, New Zealand knew that earthquakes were inevitable. They put an earthquake fund in place that's funded through standard insurance, a small premium on standard insurance. So when Christchurch was destroyed by earthquakes, the government had the money to rebuild. We need something like that to help us with our coastal defences. Um, it goes on and on. I mean, you go to the Great Barrier Reef, to endangered species, to water security, everything is going to be impacted. So we need to make sure that we can withstand those shocks. You seem to be attempting to reframe the climate action debate as, and I quote here, not a green invasion. How do you see this approach changing the debate and changing public opinion? Well, this is the, when you come to the politics of climate change, I've slowly realised that many of us have been our worst enemy. And the best example I can think of that is the convoy to uh, the Queensland coalfields, the Galilee Basin, during the last election, which didn't seem to serve any positive purpose. What it did was, was give the impression to the people in Queensland that the Greens were their enemies. What we need to do is to depoliticise the climate debate. I mean, it's used often as a weapon, the, the climate argument, for, for one side of politics to bash the other. We've seen that it's cost us prime minister after prime minister. Um, it might be morally satisfying to those on both sides of the argument to do it, but the time has come now to stop that. We need to build a, a grand coalition to deal with this, this catastrophe that's now right upon us. And we need to um, start talking to those on the right, for example, who've, who've felt that climate change has been used as a weapon against them, who've denied climate change, for sure, done other things, but we need to now start reaching out to those people and say, we can't reach a solution without you. We need Australia to move together on this. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is doable. We just need to put down the ideology and start talking about our future, how we plan for it, how we deal with the reality of the situation. We need to lose the term green. Oh, look, I think green is kind of a good term. And it, it um, you know, as a political party, Yes, it can be divisive, but we need an inclusive greenness, don't we? We need a, you know, conservatives and the word conservation share a common root. You know, there's no reason that conservatives, political conservatives should be anti-green or anti-conservation. We need to reach out to everyone now. I know how incredibly difficult it is, especially when you've got the other side still bashing you over the head, um, you know, over this, but we need to put down the weapons now um, the political weapons and come together because we are out of time. Tim, there's so many other things to talk about in your book. I'm going to give a brief list, but I might just pick out one or two at the end. There's hydrogen, there's electric vehicles, aviation and shipping, geoengineering, leadership and government policy, carbon capture and storage, drawdown, carbon negative building materials, and even seaweed. I want to talk really about 
first of all, Australia's role, and then also the leadership and the government policy in this area. From what you write, it seems or it becomes apparent that Australia has an appalling history in fighting climate change. You describe us as a climate paradox, rich in fossil fuels, yet exceptionally vulnerable to a changing climate, and that we have purchased our prosperity at terrible cost. Can you explain that statement? Greg, um, you know, if you go back into Australia's history, um, you know, Governor Phillip, when he came out with the first fleet, you know, among his instructions was uh, one uh, instruction to, to look out for coal because coal was becoming very important then and was in short supply in Britain. If they could find coal in the colonies, they would begin exporting it. So the fossil fuel industry has been with us since the very beginning European foundations of this country. Um, and yet Australia is flat, dry, with a highly variable climate. It's just positioned physically to be far more vulnerable uh, to climate change than any other continent that I can think of. So we, we, we epitomise the whole dilemma the world has, you know, the, the wealth we've built from, from using fossil fuels and the vulnerability of our continent to the consequences of that. And look, my view with this is that we just, um, we shouldn't be castigating people for the past. I mean, the people who built the coal mines, who built the prosperity, they need to be celebrated for what they did because back then they didn't know what the consequences would be. And it's unfair to blame those people way back in Australia's past who, who didn't know and thought they were acting and doing the right thing. As I said, we, we just, um, we need to come together on this somehow. We need to, to understand that opportunity and vulnerability and the history and to try to uh, forge a new way forward. I can't put it any more clearly than that because I don't have it more clearly in my mind, but it, uh, it is time to, to understand that, that profound paradox and why it's landed us where we are and put aside the, the hatred and the, um, the blaming and, and move on. As a final question to you, I want to actually point to the subtitle of your book, which is Solving the Climate Emergency in the Era of COVID-19. And you compare the use of fossil fuels as a pandemic equal to, if not greater than that of COVID-19. Given that Australia's response to COVID-19 has been relatively successful by international standards, primarily by following the science, how do you make sense of Australia's response to the fossil fuels and climate change pandemic, which has largely rejected the science? Well, it's one of the great paradoxes of the country, really. Um, you know, I remember when in February, um, the chief health officer, chief medical officer of the nation recommended that we stop flights from China. And um, that was done. The government did it. This is a two weeks before a pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. So clearly, the respect for medical science was very high and the right actions were taken. In the middle of March, I remember when, you know, the number of cases was doubling every four days in Australia, number of COVID cases. And the Prime Minister finally um, realised that things had to change. And so he introduced a series of measures which was hugely successful at limiting damage from the pandemic in this country. So, you know, those are admirable things and they really show us what can be done if government realises there's an emergency. If the federal government would do the same for uh, climate, I think we could overcome, overcome this problem. Um, 
you know, and really the federal government is the last blockage. The state governments, whether they're Labor or Liberal, are all very clean energy oriented. They understand why that needs to happen, why the transition has to go ahead. Councils around Australia, most of them are members of the city's power partnership, the Climate Council's uh, organisation and are doing great things. The last block is the federal Liberal National Party and they're holding the whole nation back. There might just be 25 skeptics in that party who are died in the wall, who are holding the entire country to ransom. It's as Malcolm Turnbull said, you know, they do that by acting like terrorists. They just threaten to blow the place up, blow the coalition up if they don't get their own way. So that's where the challenge is. Tim Flannery, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's been an enormous pleasure. It's been great. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Tim Flannery about his new book, The Climate Cure, Solving the Climate Emergency in the Era of COVID-19. It's published by Text Publishing and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for joining me.